right, man, that takes me back to my Atari days. Uh, Anyway, just dated myself. Anyway, hey, uh, welcome. So good to have everybody with us here. And uh, we do have uh, family from our Stone Canyon campus as well as many others online with us right now. So would you all here just welcome them into our time here together? (laughs) Woo! Glad you're here. Even if you're in bed, we still love you, all right? It's all good. Um, Kentucky lost again. Anyway, hey, uh, we started a new series last week called uh, Level Up, talking about marriages, talking about relationships, and hopefully you were here for it last week. If you missed out on it, you can always go online, catch that. We encourage you to do that. But uh, today we're going to continue on in that, uh, in that series. You've probably heard the story about the little girl who went to a wedding for the very first time, and, and about uh, halfway through the wedding, kind of leaned over to her mom and, and said, hey, why is uh, the bride wearing white? What's the big deal with that? And, and mom, wanting to help her understand this, said, well, well white is the, the color of happiness, and this is the happiest day of her life. And, and the little girl processing this finally went, well, then why is the groom wearing black? <laughs> ah, yeah, you've heard that one. Yeah, you know, marriage. <laughs> yeah, you've, that's a terrible rendition of that. Anyway. It's all good, right? It's all great. It's all wonderful and happily ever after until it's not, right? Until life happens. You know, in the series, we're challenging ourselves to level up, to look at what God's call is for our marriages, for our relationships, and let's go to the next level. And let's take a serious examination of our lives and ourselves and and ask the question, are we living out our relationships the way God has has called us to? Whenever I meet with uh, young couples for premarital counseling, which I have the opportunity to do quite a bit of, um, uh, one of the things I try to do over the course of the five or six weeks that I spend with them is to paint as real of a picture of marriage as I can. I I want them to to face the realities of what they are about to to step into. Matter of fact, the book that I go through with them, the very first first chapter in that book is called The Myths of Marriage. The Myths of Marriage, the fallacies, the things so many, especially young couples, believe as they are getting, uh, stepping into this relationship, this marriage relationship, and and we kind of walk through some of those things. And And what I tell them is after we go through this five or six weeks together and we look at all the realities of what you're stepping into, if you still want to get married, then I'll do your wedding. And so far, all of them have done it, all right? But we face things like, you know, uh, because they are in love, because that's why they really hang on, right? Because they are in love. Some of you remember those days, right? Right? You remember when you fell in love, right? I mean, you remember the first time you held her hand or his hand? It's like, you know, it's like you, you just, wow, you know, electricity, you know. You remember that moment when you fell in love. Falling in love's the easy part, right? <laughs> I mean, if you have a pulse, you can fall in love, right? Uh, and, and so all these young couples I'm sitting with and I'm meeting with, that, they, that's where they're at. They're in love. And so when I'm talking to them about all the reality of what they're about to face, and, and one of the myths that we, we deal with is everything good in our relationship is only going to get better when we're married. Because why? Because we're in love. That's one of the myths we talk about. Or maybe the opposite of that, 
all of the bad things in our relationship and all the bad things even from my past, they're all going to go away when we get married because we're in love. <sighs> Sick. And so we walk through all these things and again, they want to get married and they get married. And then life happens, right? <laughs> Going through school and the pressures of school and then it's uh, the career and then it's a career change and it's a move to a new community and there's bills and student loans and more bills and then there's the in-laws. I mean, it's just you go down the list of all the things that just happen when life happens and then it happens. And two become three and kids show up and ruin everything. <laughs> because when the kids show up, they want to eat and they want attention and they take time and they have dirty diapers and you just go down the list and they start to get between our in loveness. And then three becomes four. Four becomes five sometimes. If you're Nathan and Calissa Stang, our children's minister, they become eight. <laughs> That's lots of mouths to feed, lots of money, lots of time. And life goes on, and then those little things, they grow up. And you've got to drive them to school. Well, actually, you don't have to drive them to school. They could ride the bus, but what good parent would make their kid ride the bus, Right? So you drive them to school, and you pick them up from school, and you drive them to practice, and you pick them up from practice, and you drive them to the game, and you pick them up from the game, and you drive them to their friend's house, and you pick them up from their friend's house, and you drive them to church on Wednesday, and then you pick them up from church on Wednesday, and then it's just going and going and coming, and then, then finally it happens. Did you pick up Johnny on the way home? No, I thought you were going to pick up Johnny on the way home. No, I told you this morning to pick up Johnny on the way home. Oh! Where's Johnny? Well, I don't know. <laughs> and you lose a kid. <laughs> you know, that happens too. They continue to grow up. They start to drive. And stress goes up. And money goes up. Rules, more rules, more discipline that has to be put into place as they drive. And then they graduate. And then five becomes four. Four becomes three. Three becomes two. And then two becomes three again because one comes back home. <laughs> you know it. You really hope it doesn't go to four again. But anyway, get that get back to three. And then finally it's two. And then you look across the room at this person who's your spouse and you say, who are you? You're that person I fell in love with. And hopefully it's not, you're the person that I used to love. See, the sad thing is I often get a front row seat to watch couples who come to that place. That after the kids are gone and they look at each other and it's like, yeah, I used to love you. But there was nothing or at least not enough put into the marriage during the time of raising up those kids that when we got to the end and the kids were gone there was no love there and marriage ends 
That's not the kind of marriages we want to have. You see, falling in love is the easy part. It's the staying in love that takes work and it takes effort and it takes intentionality. You see, at some point along the way in life, as life happened, there was a priority shift. You see, at the beginning when we were in love and everything was wonderful and what could go wrong because we're in love, at the beginning, the priority most likely was something along the line of, you're my number one and you're my number one. And we're each other's number one. But then something happened and the priorities shifted. It may have been when that career started and the career took number one. It may have been when the kids showed up and the kids took number one. But whatever the case, there was a priority shift. And the spouse went from one to two, maybe three, in some cases even four on the priority list. And they know it. And they gut it out for the good of the kids, but once they're gone, it's over, if it makes it that long. Priorities. Whether you're married or whether you're single, we all have priorities in our life. And so today is this maybe kind of a gut check, where are your priorities at in life? Where are you at when it comes to uh, God's Word and what He desires for us when it comes to the, the priorities of our life? So we just want to take a moment, just do a check, a little checkup time today as we look at this. And we'll start off with priority one, God. Priority one is God. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, you're probably not going to argue with me on that one because you can remember back whenever you made the decision to place your faith in Christ and, and maybe it was a, a, a youth minister or your dad or a minister that said, you are surrendering your life to Christ. You are, you are making him number one in your life right now. And you say, yes, and you're baptizing him. You, you died to an old life to rise to a new life in him, right? And he was your number one. You remember, but is he, st is he still number one? That's where he desires to be in our life. Matter of fact, his word makes that pretty clear. Jesus over in Matthew chapter 6, he, he says this in verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first what God desires for you, the, the relationship that he desires for you. Make that number one, and then everything else that he just got through talking about will come into line in your life. Seek him first. Jesus would say something similar over in Matthew chapter 22. The religious leaders have come to him again. They are, they are coming up against him again. And, and actually this time it's a lawyer among them, an expert in the Jewish law. And he says, out of all the laws, all the Jewish laws, and there's some 600 plus of them. He says, out of all the laws, which is the greatest? Oh. They're going to get Jesus on this one because he's going to hack somebody off whatever law he picks. But Jesus says this there in verse 37, 38. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Make God first in your life. Give him all of you, heart, soul, mind. Make him Number one, what does that look like? How does that play out in our life? What that looks like is a, 
is, is pursuing God in a relationship, not religion. You see, we, in our humanness, we like religion because it's orderly and it's checklists and, and I've, done, I've done my duty today, I've got it done, but that's not, that's not how it's laid out for us. We were called to step into a relationship with our God, with our Savior, to walk with Him, to spend time with Him, to pursue Him in this walk with Him as He pursues us. That's what He desires. He desires to, to meet all of our needs, and He is the only one who can meet all of our needs. I like what Chad said last week when he said, Your deepest needs are met through your Maker, not your mate." That's true. We put such a burden on our, on our spouses, on others in our lives when we expect out of them out of uh, what only God can give us. And so we should be striving to make Him our number one. And if you get that one right, if you start right with priority number one, everything else should fall into line, which is what Jesus basically says over in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that we just talked about. God is priority one. So what's priority two? Priority two is your spouse. If you're married, that husband, your husband, your wife, is your priority two. Jesus really set the example of this. His first priority was his relationship with his heavenly father, with God, and, and the second one followed was his bride, the church. And he gave his life for his church. He sacrificed for his church. He was obedient to his father in giving his life for us. And so we're supposed to emulate that in our lives, in our relationships. That ought to be made evident. Over in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul there, he's actually kind of giving some uh, ideas on how, as followers of Christ, we're supposed to relate to a lot of different people. If you go through chapter 5 and into chapter 6, he's outlined just different relationships and how we're supposed to interact with one another. And, and you come to verse 21 there in Ephesians 5, and he says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's talking to all believers here, and he says, submit to one another. Like, like we're supposed to be in submission to each other. It has, uh, really carries the same idea of over in Philippians 2, whenever he talked about uh, the humility that we're ha supposed to have towards others. Don't consider yourself as better than others. Okay, That same, type, same thing. And so he, he says, be, be in submission to each other. Now, that word submission, it's an interesting word. It begins with a little prefix of sub. Okay? which means under, kind of like submarine, right? Underwater, you know, that idea. Ooh, yeah, I'm a pretty quick one. Anyway, um, and so the idea is that we are on a mission to go under one another, all right? And so I, I like the way Andy Stanley uh, lays this out, especially when it is in a, a marriage relationship. What does submission look like in a marriage relationship whenever we're supposed to be in submission to each other, even in the marriage? And he says it looks like this. You first. No, you first. No, you first. Oh, no, you first. No, you first. Kind of awkward, really, you know. It's terrible when you come to a door. I mean, it's just like, somebody, go first. But that's what we're called to. We're supposed to be in humility 
striving to serve one another and lift the other one up. Doesn't know what's happening in marriage, does it? That's what we're called to. Paul, as he's talking about us being in submission to one another, he comes to that verse, and it's almost like he says, oh yeah, speaking of submission, look at verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. See, wives have this God-given responsibility to their husbands, but, but yet, at the same time, we're all called to submit to one another. But he doesn't end there. He goes on, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of the word with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You hear submission in that as Christ sacrifices himself, gives of himself to present his bride. That's how he shows his love. Husbands, we have this God-given responsibility to our wives. I often tell men, whether it's in premarital counseling or marital counseling, I often look at them and we'll talk about this verse, and, and uh, I'm not a licensed counselor. If you come to me, I'm going to open up the Bible. Here's what God said. He made this thing called marriage, so let's see what he has to say. Anyway, so I look at him and I say, looking at Ephesians 5, guy, are you loving your wife? Because if you love your wife, verb, love, if you love your wife, she has no problem carrying out her God-given responsibility towards you if you will love her first. Leader of the home, lead. So how does this play out, this whole spouse and number two priority spot? Well, I think it looks like what I just said, humility, that we strive to serve one another, pursue one another in humility. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on our spouse uh, priority number two because the next two weeks we're basically talking more about this. What I want to spend more time on today is priority number three, and that's our kids. Priority number three, God number one, spouse number two, kids number three. Now, for some parents in our culture today, this is a hard pill to swallow because it's been ingrained in us almost to pour ourselves into our kids, to do everything that we can for our kids, and we, in essence, lift them up to number one. We've got to make sure these kids turn out right, and we, we elevate them. And that's why you hear terms like uh, helicopter parents, all right, ones that hover over their kids all the time. Oh, are you being okay? Are you safe? You know, oh, you got a boo-boo, you know. Helicopter parent. Or there's the lawnmower parent. You've probably heard that phrase where you are right in front of them with cutting a path, making sure that their path is super easy so that, you know, they don't trip and fall and they succeed in everything. And actually what you're doing is you're creating weakness in them, okay, because they don't have to make any decisions on their own. They don't have to face anything hard. And so, no, I, I believe as we look at God's Word, really the call is to make them priority number three, God, spouse, kids. Here, listen to this. 
the greatest thing that you can give your kids, and you've probably heard this before, the greatest thing that you can give to their kids is a healthy home. The greatest thing you can give to their kids is a picture of Jesus in your marriage, that they see you, husband and wife, emulating Jesus to them every day. They need to see that. And so that's why God has to be one and spouse number two. So then little Johnny can see an accurate picture of who Jesus is. Psalm uh, chapter uh, 127 verse 3, some some verses that we hear a lot when it comes to kids, but there in verse 3 it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. I know some of you, that's a shocker. You're thought of, say, a punishment. Reward. That's what they are. They are. They're awesome. They're a blessing from God. Now, I, I, I feel like I, I want to pause here for just a second because I, I want to acknowledge that there may be some that are listening or here today that um, when we start talking about kids, it hurts because you can't have them or you've tried to have them or you're trying to have them and you're trying to do all the right things and you've done the medical procedures and it hadn't worked and now you even think about adoption or you've tried adoption and it's just red tape and it's just and you're trying, you want to start this family, and so when we begin to talk about this, it hurts. And I just want to say we're, we're a church that wants to acknowledge that. We're a church that wants to walk with you in that, and we want to be a church that says, hey, kids are wonderful, and they're a blessing from God, so don't give up. One of the things I love about our leadership, our elders, is they always invite people in to be able to pray over them and anoint them with oil for the health issue or whatever. And we've had several young couples who, who have been in that place, who have not been able to have children, and, and they've come in. Our elders have prayed over them, anointed them with oil, and prayed over them, and, and they've, they've left. And, uh, and, and it hadn't been very long after that that they got to get pregnant. You know, the doctors have said, yeah, it probably ain't going to happen. And then they, get, they got pregnant. I can think of two couples right now that that specific thing happened to them. And, and so somehow we, we're kind of the church with the fertile leaders. <laughs> Elders of fertility. I, I don't know what you want to call it. But anyway, um, <laughs> hey, it happened and God is good. Anyway, I, I, I'm going to digress. So I'm not going to do that. But anyway. I do tell the couples they do have a responsibility after that. But anyway, we'll go on. But anyway, I say don't give up. Don't give up if that's where you're at. Proverbs uh, chapter 22, verse 6. Another uh, verse that we often run to, very familiar verse for, for many of you, especially if you're a parent. But we often look at this verse as a promise. There's a, a number of verses in, the, in Proverbs or over in um, uh, Ecclesiastes also that would be characterized as a truism, not a promise. Truism being this, generally this is how it goes. As, as I observe, observe life, as I see things happen, this is usually how it happens, but not always. So you look at that verse, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And you could almost put, usually. Because I've had parents who've come to me and they've poured into their kids and they've done everything they thought they could to, to raise up their kids with a solid faith and something happened. They did veer off and they did leave church. They did leave God. And they come back and they're like, what happened? What about God's promise? Well, 
and they really at that point don't want to hear, well, this is a truism, it's not a promise, and, but that's where they're at, and it hurts because they, they've read this that way for all their life and as a parent. And, but still, generally speaking, if you do train them up, if you do put effort into them, if you are intentional in raising up your kids, you have a whole lot better chance that they're going to turn out all right and follow God. Going back to Psalm 127, verse that we just looked at, uh, we looked at verse 3. Go on and look at verse 4 and 5 as he continues this idea about kids and they are a reward. And then he comes to verse 4 and says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. I love this imagery of our kids being arrows. Where does an arrow go? Where you point it, Right? And that's the idea with our kids. If we're intentional with them, if we're pointing them in the right direction, that's where they tend to go. Where are your arrows going? Takes that intentionality. So how does this play out in, in our lives and as parents? What are some specific things that kind of play into this? Number one, pray for them. Pray for them. I probably don't have to tell you to do that. You probably do that all the time, right? You're praying for your kids, and we do the same thing. Steph and I, we pray for our three kids, and, you know, when we you know, pray at night, you know, we, it, our prayers always have our kids in there. Lord, Brooke, and Jaden, God, be with them, da 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 And we almost always use this phrase, and God, may they follow Jesus all their life. May they follow Jesus all of their life. So far, we're doing all right. <laughs> Do you pray for your kids? I was talking to my mom this week, and uh, as I was driving, and, and told her I was driving, she's be safe. And, and uh, she goes, uh, "We, her, and my stepdad, we we pray for you every morning for your safety." And she prays for me and my whole family, and my brother and his whole family. We're on our prayer list. Now, that's the first time I heard her say that, and I was like, huh, "That's cool." My mom prays for me every day. If I was your kid, you'd pray for me too. Um, but it's good to know that your mom's praying for you. Your kids need to know that you pray for them, and that you're lifting them up. We need divine help as parents, right? Hey, let me pause for just a second. Some of you are sitting here, and you're way past parenting, but you're in grandparent stage. This is all for you too, especially in our culture where we have a lot of grandparents who are actually raising up their grandkids. And there's some of you in that ballpark as well, or your major influence in your grandkids' lives. This is all for you too. So pray for them. Number two, establish expectations for them. Our kids, they need to know that there's boundaries, there's rules. Matter of fact, if they don't have boundaries and rules, what that communicates to them is that we really don't love them that much, and that really cuts down on their security because if mom and dad aren't willing or don't care enough to give me rules to live by, then well, they must not care about me that much. So, we need to establish those for them. They need to know that they're going to kick against them. <laughs> Believe me, they're, they're going to do that. You've experienced that. But they need to know what the rules are. They need to know what God's call on their life is. If you go on in Ephesians chapter 5, keep on going. As he's going through relationships, he gets through with wives, he gets through with husbands, and he says, hey, kids, by the way, obey your parents. Most of them are on here. So, you know what I mean? Obey your mom and dad. But they need to know what the rules are. They need to know. Um, they need to know what God's called them to as kids. 
They need to know whenever you set expectations, not only rules, but goals, start young by helping them to achieve goals. Help them to be able to, from the time they're young, to be able to, to think about what they want to become and think about what God might want them to become. If you want to raise up a world changer, you want to raise up somebody who's going to make a difference in this world, help them from a very young age to understand that they have a God inside of them who wants to do something great inside of them and through them, and they'll grow up with that idea, and they'll be unstoppable with the Spirit of God in them. We'll raise up some world changers, but you've got to start them young to understand that and to strive to achieve that. Establish expectations in them. Another thing, number three, teach them to hear and obey God. Teach them to hear and obey God. I, I love the story over in 1 Samuel uh, where you have the story of the prophet Samuel. If you remember that story, Hannah, his mom, couldn't have a child, and she prayed, and, and God blessed her, and she had a child, and she committed that child to, to, uh, to, to serve God all of his life. And so at this point, he's in the temple with, with the priest Eli, and there's this night whenever as a young man, he hears a voice as he's sleeping, he hears a voice, Samuel, and he thinks it's Eli in the next room. And he gets up and he goes to Eli and he says, what do you want? Eli says, I want you to go back to bed because I, I didn't say anything. And so he goes back to bed. Second time, he hears the voice. He goes into Eli and Eli says, I didn't say anything. Go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed. Third time, he hears the voice. Samuel hears the voice. He goes to Eli and Eli at this point realizes this is God. And he tells Samuel, go back, and the next time you hear that voice, say to him, here I am. And Eli was teaching Samuel at a young age, listen to the voice of God and be ready to obey whatever he tells you to do. Love that story. Now, Eli was a terrible dad to his own kids. <laughs> Read the story. But he got it right with Samuel as he pointed him to listen to obey God. As parents, grandparents, we need to teach our kids from the time they're young to study God's Word, to stay in God's Word, and do what it says to obediently follow God wherever He leads. And let me say this, don't leave it up to the church. Church is here to partner, church is here to come alongside of you, but that's your role. You're the spiritual leaders of your kids. We're here to help all we can, but you've got them a whole lot more than we do. Which brings me to the last thing here with the kids, model faith. Spoke about this a little bit earlier, but you've got to model your faith. They need to see Jesus in you. Your kids, your grandkids, they need to see the you you are on Monday is the same you they see on Sunday. Got me? Because if they see a different you on Monday than what they see on Sunday, if you come in on Sunday and it's like, life is so good. I love Jesus. And then you're cussing up a storm all week and you're mad and you're angry and you're, you know, go down the list of the things that we do to our own kids during the week and everything. If they're seeing two different things, they're seeing hypocrisy. Don't think that they don't notice. They're seeing it and they're recognizing it. And they may be plugged into church and they may keep going and they may keep doing things. But if that's all they see, when it's time for them to leave the nest, when it's time for them to make their own decisions, what we often see is they say, well, Jesus wasn't a big deal to mom and dad. He doesn't need to be a big deal to me. What are your kids seeing in you every day? Is your faith in Jesus real? Real? 
Your kids are watching. We need to model our faith for them. They need to see that God is our number one. You see, because here's what we often, what we often see. Kids see this growing up. They see that Jesus really isn't that important to mom and dad. So he's not going to be important. They leave. And what we also see is mom and dad drop out of the church. And here's why. And again, I'm not a psychologist or anthropologist, but anyway, here's, here's my suspicion. Kids were in number one spot. And to do the best thing for our kids, they need to be on church on Sunday, so we're going to be in church on Sunday. And they're going to be at youth services on Wednesday because that's the best thing for our kids because they're in our number one spot. We're going to make sure that they're there. But when the kids leave and they are no longer there, well, God was down here in number three or four. So we don't need to go to church anymore because kids are gone. And so we see mom and dad leave the church, drop out of the church, or get a lot more sporadic. Kids see that too. And that just acknowledges what they had believed all along. Jesus really wasn't that important to you. Parents, grandparents, we've got to model our faith. And you can't model something you don't have. Do you have a real faith in Jesus? I hope so. I love how Dave Stone says it. Here's what he says. Dave Stone's a preacher over at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville. The best way to spread the gospel is for parents to joyfully and consistently live out their faith. When that happens, they can change their community and even the world. Did you hear that? The best way to spread the gospel is for parents to joyfully and consistently live out their faith. Your kids will see it, and they see that it's real, and they understand that they have a God that loves them and a God that's inside of them, a God that has a plan for them, and they then in turn go and live it out also. They've got to see it in you. God's number one, spouse number two, kids number three. There is a number four, real quick, others. Others in our life. If you go on to the text over there, over in Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he just got through telling them that, hey, God, you know, is supposed to be your, your, your number one. Uh, and then he goes on and he says, uh, uh, here's a second, here's a bonus law because they only asked for one law. He says, here's a bonus law. Let me tell you what the second one is. And there in uh, verse 39 he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We say it here like this, love like Jesus. Those are others. What does that look like? That's living life on mission. That's living life with the call of understanding that God has given us a responsibility to reach out to others that he puts in our path. Four priorities. God, spouse, kids, others. How you doing? How you doing? Where are you at? That may take some prayer time. That may take some gut check time for you and God to sit down alone and just Ask him that question. God, where am I at? Help me to understand. Help me to see where I am. Listen, I don't stand up here and pretend that uh, Steph and I had the greatest marriage in the world. Okay, I shared that a couple weeks ago. I think it's pretty awesome. <laughs> but we've come a long way and we've gone through a lot of things to get where we're at. I don't get up here, I don't stand up here and say I've got the three greatest kids in the world. 
He finally looked at me. <laughs> They're pretty awesome. We don't have it all figured out. But I do believe that if we'll prioritize ourselves this way, we'll train up our kids in the ways of the Lord, we have a really, really, really good chance of raising up some good kids. If we'll make God our number one priority, Chad talked about this last week, if we'll make God our number one priority, each one of us will come together closer in our relationship with one another, and we'll have a great, great marriage. And we'll stay in love. Where you at? We'll have a verse over in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4. Going back to our kids. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I hope in your marriage you can look at your wife, your husband one day, give each other a high five. God is good. Our kids are heading the right way. That's what I pray for each one of us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, help us to take a look at our lives and give it an honest evaluation. Help us not to sugarcoat it and not be real with ourselves, but God, help us to see whether we really have you number one. If we really have you, <clears throat> if we're really walking with you in a, in a close relationship, and God, help us to look at our marriages and be very real and God, help us to make that determination if we need to do some things to, different. God, help us to look, take a look at our kids. And are we really training them up in, in you? Are we really modeling for them what they need to see? God, help us to see the call you've given to us to live on mission to reach others. God, just help us as we look through these and examine these priorities that you've laid out for us in your, in your word, God. Help us to follow you. And when we don't, God, draw us in. Continue to pursue us. God, hold on tight to us. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.